If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. What with CinemaCon being held in Las Vegas this past week, as well as the daytime Emmys, we have lots and lots and lots to talk about this time around, so let's bring in the one, the only, Drew Taylor. Oh, thanks for having me back, Jim. Drew and I always talk off-air before we get started on these things, and so we were just sort of trading baseball cards earlier in the week about what went on at CinemaCon, and the thing that surprised me most coming out was the news about Ardman working on a sequel to Chicken Run? Yeah, without Nick Park, Yeah, which is well, weird. I'm yeah, it's what, 18 years at least? Yeah. If you look back, it is in fact the highest grossing stop motion animated film of all time, though I'm kind of holding out hope for Leica's fifth film, which by the way also got announced this week, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, but, and the first movie not to be distributed by Focus Features. They're going with Megan Ellison's Annapurna films, which is interesting. I agree. Okay. I always thought that at some point Universal would wise up and put those characters in the parks or do something, but it looks like they're just letting them go. Maybe Illumination is enough for Universal, animation-wise. Honestly, there is so much on the table right now. When you think about they bought DreamWorks back in 2016, and they're trying to really bring those characters in the park. In fact, we'll get to that a bit later. But yeah, I remember... Was it year before last? You, they actually did meet and greets in the park. Oh, with Kubo characters, right? They did. They yeah. did. So, I mean, they at least made the stab at it. Anyway, circling back to the original Chicken Run, I have a fondness for the first film, largely because the Visual Effects Society, it's, it's all of the folks who actually work in the visual effects industry. They used to meet for like this three-day-long symposium at the LA Film School. And what was really cool about it is that You'd go into the theater, they'd close the door, it's 300 people who've worked on the big effects films of the year, and they then begin to tell stories that you really shouldn't hear. I mean, I (laughs) I remember Phil Tippett, he was talking about how I used to work in special effects, and then I worked in visual effects, and now I work in effects, and that's because the people who greenlight these movies don't think what I do is special anymore. And that's the guy that helped bring the dinosaurs to life in Jurassic Park and Star Wars and RoboCop. Countless amazing movies. When they were first working on Jurassic Park, I mean, that was the thinking. We'll do the dinosaurs stop motion. But during that same window of time, CG stepped forward and Phil was brought in to look at the initial CG tests of the dinosaurs. And they rolled the footage and they turned to him, what do you think? And he said, I think I just became extinct. (laughs) But he still got to work on it. Well, yeah, he's a favorite of mine. But at the same time, you got at this event, you got to see cool things like Nick Park, the original director, Chicken Run, and he who's attending this event, but Ray Harryhausen, the admitted modern master of stop motion, and standing at their elbow watching the two of them talk. And Ray turns to Nick, and it was like we're holding the Miss Tweety doll, and it's just sort of like, where did you get the eyes? It's we had to steal them out of dolls. The other big question here is that if you're doing a sequel, does that mean you're bringing back Mel Gibson to voice Rocky the Circus Chicken? Because since his run-in with, with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office and 
it's been an interesting situation. I mean, mind you, last year we saw him in Daddy's Home, and that didn't have the impact on the box office that a lot of people in the industry thought that it would. But, Drew, do you lie awake at night? Are there many unanswered questions from the original Chicken Run? <laughs> there are just, just so many questions. Are the chickens captured again? I mean, what, yeah. what's going on? I mean, because that's what was so great about the first one, right, was that it was a classic kind of prison escape movie. Yep. But in stop motion animation with a bunch of chickens. So I don't really know what the gimmick is going to be this time around. I love Aardman. Although, I don't know if you saw Early Man. It was not the greatest movie in the world. <sighs> I have to say the thing of Early Man is that unless you really were a soccer fan, and yeah. specifically an English soccer fan, mm-hmm. I don't think that film resonated the way it was supposed to. And yeah, I had no idea it was going to be that. British, to be honest with you, because that was one of the things that Katzenberg really fought with them about, right, was the level of Englishness of those movies. When I actually interviewed uh, Nick Park for Early Man, and he told me these stories about, oh, Jeffrey would come over in his private jet. They do not work in London. They work in some small town in England, and he would sit there and kind of manage these bunch of goofy animators. It sounded like a very interesting work environment to say the least. But that was sort of the breaking point with DreamWorks, right? Was that DreamWorks thought they were too British and they were like, you know what? We can't do this anymore. I remember going to DreamWorks and being showed very early on a lot of the work that was being done on Flushed Away. And there was this whole elaborate opening for the film where the Hugh Jackman character had manservants. In fact, he had a pair of manservants. And when the film came out, it's like, they're gone. Mm-hmm. It was one of these things where it's like, just get them into the sewers as quickly as possible and let's get moving here. But the Chicken Run sequel comes out 2020 and between now and then is a Shaun of the Sheep movie, the, which again, my new favorite title of the coming, Farmageddon. <laughs> that is great. I love the first Shaun of the Sheep. I always love what Ardman does. In fact, over the holiday season, I even find myself getting sucked into their what is it oh arthur christmas arthur christmas yeah it's a great movie when it came out it didn't do the numbers that anybody had hoped but now has become beloved after the fact though i suppose the folks at paramount are hoping that that doesn't happen with their animation slate yeah i mean their animation kind of shingle has had some fits and starts recently right because they did little prince which ended up being released on netflix Mm -hmm. they did monster trucks which I guess the the less said, the better. But we've all heard the stories about the creature being redesigned, you know, like a year after they had completed principal photography and all of that kind of stuff. So they were at CinemaCon. They were talking a big game. They've got a slate coming out. But you were the one who pointed out that when you look at the slate, these are all outside production companies. Right. Monster on a Hill, that's real effects. Luck is Skydance. And then there's a third SpongeBob movie. It's a wonderful sponge, but that's Nick. Well, it's sort of like Warner Brothers, though, too, right? Because they farm out all their animation now, too, to either Animal Logic or even Sony animation is doing Smallfoot, which just had a new trailer Mm -hmm. this week. But do you know the thinking behind this stuff? Do they just not want to commit to studios or, or what? I think it's more about the financials. Yes, we want to be in this space because... Animated features do quite well, and if you're looking to do that series for Netflix further on down the line, or or if you're looking to license, 
these are the films you can lend themselves that much more easily to licensing. But if you think of how many times these studios have spent tens or hundreds of millions of dollars setting up animation studios that then crash and burn after the first film doesn't do the business that everybody had hoped. This seems to be the new model. Yeah. That's the thing of a lot of people in the industry were talking about when DreamWorks was being sold and what they'd done with Captain Underpants. And the story work was done by DreamWorks, but the animation was farmed out to this wonderful little studio up in Canada who did Amazing work. I mean, have you seen that movie? It really, really looks Yeah, it, it looks amazing. Yeah, and they just, they just did that t- movie about the dog that came out. What is that called? Sergeant Stuffy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. I heard was okay. The okay. problem around here in New Hampshire was, hi, that's in one theater. Oh, no, it's not. Black Panther's in there. Right. So I hope to circle around to that at some point. Well, what do you make of this SpongeBob news because the sequel was on tv the other day and i had it on and my fiance was absolutely baffled as to why they were cg and why uh, antonio banderas was in the movie and and all of that fun stuff but first of all spongebob what was it 1999 i mean that's how long this character has been out there and just this past week spongebob took home the award for outstanding children's television which for an almost 20-year-old show is is kind of astounding. And Tom Kenny, the amazing voice of SpongeBob. Yeah, I love Tom. He's so great. I was lucky enough to do an interview with him out ahead of the the SpongeBob the stop motion holiday special they did, you know. And the call dropped and so it's like, "Oh, okay. So, all right. So, I got as much interview as I'm going to get, but you know, battery died or that sort of thing." And like 15, 20 minutes later, I get a call back and it's Tom again. And he says, I wasn't finished talking. I was really enjoying talking to you. And it was like, oh, okay. That's so nice. You understand you're not supposed to be nice? Yeah. (laughs) You're you're supposed to be a jerk. You know, but again, this is also the holiday special with Don't Be a Jerk, It's Christmas, which, by the way, Tom wrote. Oh, wow. Well, speaking of songs, though, that's the other news we're kind of waiting on here is that May 1st, the Tony nominations are going to be announced. And spongebob the musical which opened in december uh, you know down on broadway is an unlikely story but it's one of the smash hits of the season and the smart money is that ethan slater the guy who's playing the title role it kind of has a lock on the best actor in a musical award which oh wow it's just kind of bizarre do we think that frozen is gonna get any nominations <coughs> um yeah you know it has some lovely costumes, some amazing sets. The smart money is on one or both of the ladies who play Anna and Elsa being nominated. Okay. The fear, I guess, on Disney's part is what if they end up in the same category and basically cancel each other out? Right. Your praise of, of Frozen the Musical reminds me when George Clooney was on Leno promoting Batman and Robin and, and Leno said... I've never seen colors like this in a movie. That's the only thing he said. <laughs> I've never seen colors like this, you know. So that, that that's your damning with faint praise, I think. Uh, what is the old, the left-handed compliment? When you go backstage and you don't know what to say to somebody and it's like, those shoes are amazing. Oh my <laughs> God, where did you get those shoes? Frozen has a lot of amazing shoes. Anyway. Back to CinemaCon. <laughs> CinemaCon. Other news coming out. Uh, speaking of sequels, we've got Secret Life of Pets. I, I was kind of stunned to see this was the sixth highest grossing film in 2016 so it made like 870 million dollars worldwide so of course universal pictures is going to make a sequel but of course tiny little problem 
Louis C.K., the Me Too movement, all that. Mm-hmm. So you can't really bring him back to voice Max. Max the dog. Max the dog. So they've decided to go another way. And and that's Pat Oswald, which personally I love. I've been a huge fan of his stand-up stuff forever. In fact, have you ever heard the piece of stand-up he does about if time travel actually exists, how he... He wants to go back in time and beat George Lucas to death with a shovel. Oh, yeah. It's a sentiment I share, for sure. (laughs) I think all nerds can kind of get behind that one. I mean, the prequels are are not great. They're terrible. Okay, but given that he's such a huge Star Wars nerd, I have to admit, I'm kind of intrigued that the big announcement out of CinemaCon was that Harrison Ford is going to be voicing a character for Secret Life of Pets 2. There isn't an animation studio in town that hasn't gone after Harrison at some point to try to get him to voice a character. Well, this is is his first animated character, right? That's right. In fact, I want to say the first time I heard about somebody going after him was Disney. This was when they were beginning early development on Tarzan in... This would have been 95 or thereabouts. They wanted him to voice Kershak. I guess Disney already had Glenn Close lined up. She was going to voice Kala, Tarzan's mom. About this same time, Air Force One comes out. Uh In that film, Harrison Ford plays President Marshall and Close plays Vice President Bennett, I want to say. And Disney actually had some success with The Lion King when they did something similar, when they took two people who played a linked set of characters. In this case, it was James Earl Jones and Mad Sinclair who played Eddie Murphy's parents in Coming to America. So the thinking was, well, could we do the same thing? Could we get Glenn Close and Harrison Ford to Kala and Kershak? But the problem was this was just after the Indiana Jones adventure had opened at Disneyland, and Disney initially had... Harrison lined up to voice the animatronic figure in the attraction, and there was just this this colossal screw-up that Disney somehow offended Ford so much. He's like, he had nothing to do with the project. He backed away, and, and this actually evidently colored his decision not to do Kershak as well. Wow, I never knew that, because I always wondered, you only see Sala in the opening slideshow on the ride yep. and then the mm-hmm. voice of the animatronic is very clearly not Harrison Ford. Taurus! It's the worst Harrison Ford imitator on the planet. Yeah. I think some of that was deliberate. We don't want to tick him off even further. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like, make it not sound like him so people know it's not him. But Right. So they, they piss off Harrison Ford. They default to Lance Hendrickson who played the character of Bishop the Android and all of those Aliens movies. So he ends up being Tarzan. Okay. All Disney stories circle back on one another. And I remember one of the ways that Disney was able to take advantage of Glenn Close is she was already making that John Hughes live-action remake of 101 Dalmatians. She was playing Corolla DeVille. Right. But it turns out she wasn't Disney's first choice. The studio's first choice was Sigourney Weaver, also of all the Alien movies. That's crazy. That would have been a very different movie, I feel like, if Sigourney had done it. Speaking of interesting casting, okay, so the other thing coming out of Comic-Con is everyone talked about this ridiculously confident presentation 
that Disney put on. I mean, when it comes to stars, they didn't even bring any stars to Las Vegas. It's like, hey, our movies are the stars. And next year, it's this weird run of these live-action reimaginings of Disney classic animated films. I mean, we've got Tim Burton's take on Dumbo. Yes. I remember you were among the first to tell me about this. Well, and I also have been to the set, which Mm -hmm. I can't talk about yet, but we will talk Mm -hmm. about as soon as I can. Yeah, but it, it looks incredible, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think this movie is going to be crazy good, but very Tim Burton and very, very over the top. I mean, if you remember the circus gang from Batman Returns, mm-hmm. lots of vibes of that from what I've seen. Well, I love when you look at the cast. I mean, you know, here's Danny DeVito back. Here's Michael Keaton. But this time, Michael Keaton's the bad guy and Danny DeVito's the hero. <laughs> so... <laughs> I have to admit, I love that. Yeah. And then pivoting to the next live action reimagining, opening on May 4th of next year, we have Guy Ritchie's take on Aladdin. And mm-hmm. all people could talk about out of Las Vegas was that they'd seen the footage and that, that you know, wow, Will Smith was so brave that he wasn't channeling Robin Williams's take on the genie. And it's just sort of like... You guys have seen the Broadway musical, right? The, the guy who won the Tony, by the way, right. didn't channel Robin Williams either. So you go all the way back to Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, when they initially pitched their take on Aladdin, it was the genie was going to be Fats Waller meets Cab Calloway. We should mention that not the only film thing going on right now, because Tribeca is underway. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, and I think that we both kind of ignored this because Tribeca is admittedly not the most prestigious or newsworthy film festival. But Don Hahn has a new documentary there. For anyone who's a fan of movies like Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or Mermaid and that sort of thing, this is the story of Howard Ashman. I'm really excited to see this movie. But is this where it made its debut on the festival circuit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had not even heard about this until you told me about it. And I kept an eye on what was playing at at Tribeca. But, I mean, I am dying to watch it. Because if anybody saw Waking Sleeping Beauty, his documentary Um, about the Disney Renaissance, you know how heartbreaking the Ashman stuff was in that movie. I mean, it's going to be great. But on a much lighter note, I wanted to share, did you hear what Kathleen Taff, who is the new distribution chief at Disney, uh, described the genie as at CinemaCon? Because this is hilarious. This is hilariously like tone deaf. She said, let's just say he's a little fresh prince, a little hutch, and a whole lot of attitude. Which which sounds like she's selling a like sports drink in the mid-90s. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> quickly stepping away from that. And yeah. Then, of course, our final reimagining for next year is The Lion King, which it's so funny when you actually talk with anybody at Disney, the first word out of anybody's mouth is Beyonce. Beyonce is voicing the Nalog. And so that means that she's going to sing, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And oh my God, we're going to make so much damn money off of the, mm-hmm. this movie. And it's just sort of like, Okay. I mean, Nala's kind of a supporting character, but I guess Favreau has really, it's, well, you got to see the footage. From D23, yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. It was, but at the same time, I mean, don't come at it. Photorealistic take on the Circle of Life opening that we all know from the movie. Did it bother you at, at all that it seemed to be a shot per shot per shot? Yeah. Redo of the 94 film? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
This is a com- comparison that no one at Disney will like to hear, but it, the thing it reminded me most of was Gus Van Sant's Psycho, because it was literally shot for shot the original movie with a different element. It's not live action in any sense of the word, even though they shot some stuff in a volume in downtown L.A., Mm-hmm. And I just hope that there's some imagination there, that there is something new. I'm hoping that Beyonce gets a new song because they've, uh, you know, we've heard that there's going to be new songs, obviously, because it can't mm-hmm. be nominated for an Oscar without a new song. True. That's what I hope. I mean, I it's gorgeous and I can't wait to just watch it, but I do hope there's something else. And, and obviously Favreau did such an amazing job with Jungle Book. Do you think it might be a case that people expect that of Circle of Life and then once you establish the world, you establish the look, then you can do what you did with, you know, he can do what he did with Jungle Book, which, you know, yeah. make, you know the wonderful, like, Scarlett Johansson's take on Ka, or uh-huh. the variations they did with Baloo, with Bill Murray, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there was some stuff in that footage, too, that they did kind of purposely obscure. We didn't really see what Rafiki looked like, so I'm hoping there's some fun surprises there, but, I mean, when you have James Earl Jones coming back to voice the character he did in 1994, that just seems, I don't know. I, I don't really um, get it. I don't know. I honestly want to trust them. I really, really do. Of course, there's also a part of me that if John Favreau comes back to Disney, it's like, can you make the Magic Kingdom instead? Can you make that movie? Because I've been waiting on that uh, movie. and I'm dying for that. Oh, uh, whereas The Lion King? I mean, and then to look at the other stuff that's just been announced, it's like, really? We're going to do Lady and the Tramp? this way too mm-hmm. and it's like i have to tell you i'm not lying awake at night going oh boy can't wait for the great mouse attack <laughs> the other concern there were a number of folks who were looking at this stacking of the three live action reimagining and just sort of like wow this is a lot of stuff and is is that too closely stacked together and and to be honest when you you step back cold-bloodedly in the year we're having right now what black panther came out in february and what made 1.3 billion so far it's still it's still in the theaters mind you it is playing (laughs) next door to infinity war in theaters right now it's amazing that's nuts and infinity wars in fact the initial box office projections have come out and they're saying it's actually surpassed the domestic opening of Force Awakens. Yeah, with what? biggest opening of all time. They say it's going to clear 250 this weekend. That's which, nuts. It's you nuts. Know, and, and then you have Ant-Man of the Wasp coming in July. So the interesting thing is you actually talk with, with people who are in distribution like, okay, Black Panther, Infinity Wars, and Ant-Man are spaced 10 weeks apart. Whereas if you look at Dumbo, Aladdin, and Lion King next year, they're stacked eight weeks apart and it's one of these things where it's like I, i've literally had exhibitor friends saying that's going to make a difference and it's just sort of like really two weeks because do you see any of these films pulling a black panther and being number one for what five weeks six weeks in a row i don't see it but the other thing that's interesting is that the marvel movies since they share a, a narrative kind of backbone they can mm-hmm. build on one another i don't know if this happened in oh. your screening of infinity war but when cap says i i know a place and you hear those kind of tribal African drums, just Mm. the drums sent Mm. people applauding the return of Wakanda, you know? And it's like, well, Dumbo's not going to show up in Aladdin and, you know, (laughs) Lion King isn't going to fill in the backstory from Beauty and the Beast. So, you know, that's the other thing that I think is is a little bit different is that that Marvel is all part of one narrative. And these are just classic reimaginings of your favorite childhood 
movies. So that's a great insight, Drew. Wow. I guess we'll have to regroup in a year and, and find yeah. out what actually happened there. Speaking of next year, March 1st, 2019, we're going to see the release of How to Train Your Dragon 3, which now has a subtitle, The Hidden World. Do you know what The Hidden World means? This is a long time ago now. This was July of 2013. I was at San Diego Comic-Con and Dean was actually there as part of the the DreamWorks panel. They were promoting Peabody and Mr. Sherman and Turbo and, of course, How to Train a Dragon 2. And- all classics. All classics. Tur- <laughs> Turbo and... Anyway, I got lucky enough to sit down with Dean and he was talking about anybody who worked on the original... How to Train Your Dragon for 2010 will flat out tell you it was it was a nightmare production. And the fact that the film turned out as well as it did, how much of that movie they threw out and started it over. And it just so it was always intended to be a standalone. And the notion that here it makes all of this money, you know, that's in fact, it actually managed to outgross Tangle. Domestically, oh, wow. which is really saying something. Yeah. So anyway, he's after the fact. He's told, "Okay, make this a trilogy." Now, mind you, Chris Sanders, his co-director, has already moved on to. He's working on Crude. So Dean has got the How to Train a Dragon thing all to himself, and so he begins to read the what's her name, Chrisida Cowell, Cowell Chrisida yeah. Cowell, who wrote the twelve books that this series of films is based on, and I guess in the first. Book, there's a line where it's Hiccup looking back as an old man, and he says something to the effect of, there were dragons when I was a boy. And that, Ooh. for Dean, was the thing that he latched onto. It's like, okay, where did they go? What happened? He used that as sort of his exit point, that you know, the notion is that however this series ends, the end point is that Hiccup has helped make the dragons safe, which is why... They're not in our world now, but they were a part of the the Viking world. Uh And at the same time, you know, here's Katzenberg, like, make it a trilogy. So he sits down and watches all of the the cinematic trilogies, and some were obviously a little more successful than others. (coughs) Matrix. (laughs) You had something in your throat there, Jim. There we go. Yeah. But he ends up circling back to, of course, to the the, the first three Star Wars films, uh, New Hope, Empire, and uh, Jedi. Dean comes up with this idea that to kind of put a a matriarchal spin on the whole Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader thing. This is like 2011. His original take on the the movie is that Valka, the the mother character that Kate Blanchett plays Mm -hmm. in, in two, she was originally the villain of uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 and, and, and going into 3, that the way he described her, she was Jane Goodall gone bad. That's really interesting. That's that's much much more interesting than whoever Jaiman Hansu played. I don't even, I don't really remember the bad guy from the second Bloodvist. one. Bloodvist. Yeah. Something Bloodvist. No, it, it, the weird part is you can go online now. If you type in How to Train Your Dragon, Valka Villain. There's actually a bunch of boards that were done for the film that are, are out there in line right now. So anyway, he's, he's putting together this story. And at the same time, Katzenberg pushes back against the whole the Aladdin story. You know, next, the mom. Jeffrey doesn't like mothers for some reason. So in this case, having Velka as the villain of the things. No, no, no. We got to go another way. But. But they were at Khan in, in 2014, and they're there to promote the trilogy. And, and Jeffrey, I guess, was out meeting with exhibitors and came back and said, well, you know, could we make this into a four-part? 
because they really seem to want more movies. But then, of course, Jeffrey winds up leaving DreamWorks when the company gets sold to Universal in, what is it, 2016 mm-hmm. for $3.8 and now here we are with, again, so The Hidden World, the story description came out of Vegas. Hang on. As Hiccup fulfills his dream of creating a peaceful dragon utopia, Toothless' discovery of an untamed, elusive mate draws the dragon away. When danger mounts at home and Hiccup's reign as village chief is tested, both dragon and rider must make impossible decisions to save their kind. Uh, finally, the Toothless love story that we wanted this whole time. He needs a mate, you know? He needs a mate, and not only that, I guess that's the other news that came out of Caesars, is that the Night Fury that he falls in love with is all white. So it's just... Aww. There we go. Universal peace. So Yeah. I couldn't help but notice, original How to Train Your Dragon, released in theaters March of 2010, that comes out from Paramount Pictures. Jump ahead to May of 2014, we've got How to Train Your Dragon 2, that's released through 20th Century Fox. And now jumping ahead to next year, May of, oh, excuse me, March of 2019, we've got How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. This one's being distributed by Universal Pictures. <laughs> Have you ever heard of anything like that for, before? No. An individual franchise being handled by that many studios? No, that is insane. Mm. That shows you how up and down the entire Universal animation saga has been. Like, mm. I mean, it's crazy, but... I, they seem to be in better shape. We've got that Kung Fu Panda attraction opening up here in, in Universal Studios. That's true. That's Hollywood. True. And I hope you come yeah, out for that. I'm hoping. I mean, I did go down to Florida in November to catch oh, when Universal Orlando debuted the new holiday parade. And mm-hmm. and that had DreamWorks all over it. So they, oh, they really? clearly, you know, but it, it was kind of bizarre because it would be for every DreamWorks property, there was an Illumination property. They had uh, Madagascar followed by a Despicable Me float. Or they'd have a Shrek balloon along with a, a Minion balloon. Mm-hmm. And like you said at the top of the show, when you, you look at the fact that you had Focus Features that had all of the Leica movies, and now they've got these two huge animation series with all sorts of IP, how does this work out? You know, because you want them... To do good work, but at the same time, they have to live with the deals that, you know, for example, Jeffrey made while he was in charge of DreamWorks. And I think you and I were talking about off air about that the Motion Gate Dubai theme park that opened in December of what, 2016? Oh, yeah. That's the one with the like Hunger Games experience. There's a lot of very bizarre IP. I was actually in Dubai a few years ago and I did not... This was not open yet, but if it had been, I'm sure I would have been on the Hunger Games, you know, <laughs> capital coaster or whatever it's called. Were, were you there for the, the Fast and Furious thing? Or? No, I was just there on vacation, but I, of course, had to go. Speaking of Brad Bird, who was a, the subject of our last uh, episode, I had to go to the Burj Khalifa where they shot that amazing scene from Mission Impossible. I said, I have oh. to do it. I have to go. So that was the one thing that I, I had to do. But the yeah, the Fast and Furious did a junket there because of that one scene in the movie. I don't even remember which one it was, but I'm just waiting for a great How to Train Your Dragon ride because the the videos of this one uh, not not that great. Nah, but if you think that's bad, you should watch the video for the Hotel Transylvania attraction there. It just it looks like the ride designers 
were on a steady diet of quaaludes. I've never seen anything move more slowly in my entire life. Really? Okay. I'm going to check it out. It's very bad. So I'm um, speaking of, of, of really bad theme park rides. I swear to God, this week came across an old Imagine News. This is the in-house newsletter that Walt Disney Productions used to print in the late 70s, early 80s. Wait, is this, be- is this before my favorite Imagineer newsletter, 3D? Wasn't that what it was called? What was the one that you sent me? <laughs> what was the... Oh, my God. That has well, been a while. Yes. D3 or something? D- out of yeah, yes. from, yeah, from the early yeah, 90s. Get, yeah. Again, I make so many smart choices in life. At this point in your life, you really want to get into print. Yeah. But, but it gets you great stories. So. Yeah. As part of this newsletter, which was uh, printed in April of 1981, they talk about this thing called the Imagineer Workshop. And so evidently this meeting of like 50 or, or some odd wedded Maple Imagineers and you'd recognize the names. I mean, you know, the folks who were there include Marty Sklar, Roly Crump, Randy Bright. And as part of this article, they talk about four attractions that were presented at this meeting and that people were feeding ideas on. One of them was a space pavilion for Epcot Center called the Solar System. The other was additions to the Disneyland Master Plan, which we'll get to in a moment. The third one was an Asian heritage village, which was supposed to be this retail entertainment complex that was going to be built next door to the Disneyland Hotel. And finally, in in the history of bad theme park attractions, this was good. They wanted to build an attraction based on the studios still in development at this point, mind you. Black Cauldron. Wow. Now, um, some of this stuff actually sounds cool. The solar system ride... They actually describe in the article as a multimedia voyage across the solar system featuring large-scale audio-animatronic sets on the magnitude of Pirates of the Caribbean, coupled with widescreen video presentations to simulate interplanetary travel sequence. All right. To me, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. And the Disneyland master plan stuff, I mean, what makes me crazy about articles about this is you get like one line. And it's like, well, what the hell did that mean? And for example, they talk about they wanted to change the Disneyland master plan so that uh, the proposed new parade route, which would free Main Street of congestion. So it's like, so where did the parade go if it didn't Mm -hmm. go up Main Street? Yeah. And we talked about the Asian thing. In fact, what's kind of interesting about that is they mention other international aspects And it's very clear when you're reading the description, it's like, holy crap, they're trying to take stuff that they developed for World Showcase and bring it to Anaheim. Oh, wow. But anyway, back to the Black Cauldron thing. Again, they mentioned as part of the article, this is a a proposed attraction. They're doing concept work. Uh, It's based on an animated feature, that same name as currently in production. But what really caught my eye was the, the description of the attraction. One of the more unique features of the proposed Black Cauldron attraction is the guest option to choose different routes at four points in a ride. And I thought that was amazing, but you were the one, Drew, who pointed out that, well, you know, this is what, 81? Horizons opens in Future World in October of 83. And it's like, is this where that idea eventually ended up? It sure sounds like it. And as a diehard Horizons fan, you know, I'm always trying to make the connection to Horizons. So maybe maybe I'm just seeing that. But it sounds to me like, yeah, picking which future you want to live in. I know you were a big under the sea guy, probably. <laughs> I was uh, I like the the desert land. I, I you know, there's there's so many different different places we can go. But one of them is not going to be on this ride. Right. Did you get any more of a sense of what this ride was going to be? 
No, but but let me tell one particularly sad story here. Uh-uh. I come by my Disney nerd bona fides legitimately that I was living in Orlando at the time and a friend who was a cast member let me know, by the way, World of Motion is closing. So I go there, they get you know, the night that it's going to close. And it turns out there's me and one other lonely nerd, all right, who's also <laughs> been clued into this. And you have these really annoyed cast members like, please get on the ride. Please get on the ride. Would you please get on the ride? Would you, you know, because they want to close the attraction. They want to go home. And the two of us are jockeying for position. So we have bragging rights that we were the last person to ride on, on World of Motion. And, and then I finally give in. All right, fine. You can be the last person. We get on the ride. We go up the first curve. And as you know, as we come up, we're about to enter the first show scene. There's this grinding, horrible noise. The ride system breaks down. Wow. If we had not spent 10 or 15 minutes jockeying back and forth to see who would be the last sad nerd to get on World of Motion, I could have actually ridden the ride. But no, it broke. And the guy, you know, I said, well, you're going to fix it. It's like, we're tearing it down tomorrow. No, we're not going to fix it. Get off. Wow. They walked me down the curved stairway. And that was that. The walk of shame. The The walk walk of shame. (laughs) Now, Drew and I, when we're talking about this show, you know, we're always looking to what we're going to do next. We talked at the top of the show about the Emmys and what was kind of interesting about the daytime Emmys that were announced on Friday is who wins for outstanding writing on uh, the the Emmy uh, for an animated program this time, but Troll Hunters. And that caught your attention, didn't it, Drew? Well, first of all, I love Troll Hunters. Have you have you been watching this the is show? The net- Netflix show, right? Yeah, so, this is a Netflix show created by Guillermo del Toro. But as we were talking about it, what's so interesting is that it was originally developed for Disney, and Disney Publishing ended up putting out the novel that this series is based on a couple of years ago when Guillermo still had this huge deal with Disney for his own imprint, which maybe you can can talk a little bit about that. This was the first D23 Expo. And here's Dick Cook in the Orange County Convention Center, the big arena on stage. And, you know, it was part of this amazing presentation, which what, what ends with Johnny Depp coming on stage and in full Captain Jack Sparrow makeup. Here's suddenly this video that's supposedly coming from New Zealand, which kind of makes me sad now because, again, Guillermo was there because, of course, back then he was going to be directing The Hobbit, which, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't work out. No. Anyway, so he's there to announce that he's working with Disney to launch this whole new production arm. And, and okay, I always get the name right. It's Disney Double Dare You, is that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the way it's described, the idea of this production arm was that it was supposed to create new animated films full of chills and thrills for audiences of all ages. And you have to understand why Dick Cook w- would have set this up. This is before... Disney bought Marvel. This is... No, Disney had just bought Marvel. What am I talking about? Because that was one of the things they they were able to announce at D23, that we just made this deal for Marvel. But Dick Cook was the guy who's been working at Disney Studio forever, and he was looking at how all of the other studios were making movies, horror movies, that were making good box office. And Disney was never able to be in this space because, of course... Horror can't be family friendly, except, of course, if you're Guillermo de Toro. Yeah. Guillermo had come through the door with the concept of Troll Hunters. And in fact, Troll Hunters initially at Disney was supposed to be the first animated feature out 
under this new label. But at the same time, if you look at the press accounts, it says, well, we're working on Troll Hunters, but there's another thing we're, we're working on that I can't talk about, but it's going to seem really familiar to you guys. And of course, that's the Haunted Mansion movie. Mm-hmm. The version Guillermo was going to do, which, you know, the, had the Hatbox Ghost front and center. But this is such a great story. And in fact, you got to interview Guillermo after the Disney deal went south and have all those amazing insights about, you know, him talking about, you know, how the Hobbit actually played a, you know, a factor in this thing not going forward. But we have to do this for an upcoming. Uh, oh, know, yeah. It's amazing. Coming. It's an amazing story. And I feel like. I finally now have reached a point where I, when I interview Guillermo, I'm no longer bothering him about what happened with Disney Double Dare You. Or, or I think, you know what? I think when I talked to him about uh, Shape of Water, I asked about Haunted Mansion again. So I, I have not let that die yet. But yeah, we have to get into all this. It's a great, it's an amazing story. Okay, well, we'll tell you what, folks. We'll get to that in our very next installment of fine-tuning. If, on the other hand, if if you guys have any suggestions of, of stories that you'd like Drew and I to, to explore in, in future fine-tuning episodes, feel free to pass those along. Uh, I guess for today, that that's it. And on behalf of Drew Taylor and myself, have a good day, okay? Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine-Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.